I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got a great double feature for you. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to returning guest, Doug Bandal, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan about geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy, from rising tensions with China to filled U.S. policy on North Korea and everything in between, including a discussion about calls for troops to be put on the ground in Haiti. All that and much more with Doug Bandow. But first, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecrafts, Dr. Anel Sheline and William Hartung, join us to discuss... U.S. foreign policy, Saudi Arabia, and the arms industry. Recently, Dr. Shaline and Hartung wrote a piece for the nation entitled It's Time to Cut Off Arms Sales to the Saudi Regime. We'll be discussing that as well as the Yemen War, the consequences of U.S. military interventions in the Middle East, and the changing world order. Are we moving towards a more multipolar world? Is that term multipolar merely Russian propaganda or is there something to it? And what does a multipolar world mean for both good and ill? Those are just some of the issues we'll be covering in the conversation to follow. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with the Quincy Institute's Dr. Anel Shaline and William Hartung.
Welcome back to Parallax Views, two guests I think very highly of. I've been following their work uh, for some time now. Dr. Anel Shiline and William Hartung of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. How are you guys doing today? Good, good. Doing great. Thanks for having us. So the two of you uh, recently wrote a piece for The Nation magazine. It's time to cut off arms sales to the Saudi regime. Bring us up to speed with what is happening with U.S.-Saudi relations. I mean, we just heard that Mohammed bin Salman has been granted legal immunity by the U.S. in a lawsuit concerning the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Is there anything else we should know about in terms of the U.S.-Saudi relationship? Well, uh, I'm happy to go first, and then Bill, I think, can bring up a lot more in terms of sort of the ongoing weapons relationship. But just one one point of clarification here. So in terms of the the granting of immunity, so what, what we've heard from the Biden administration is is not terribly surprising given that um, Mohammed bin Salman did take on the role of prime minister. This was um, somewhat unusual because he is still crown prince. His father, the king, is still technically in charge and would usually be the prime minister, the head of government in Saudi Arabia. And so the fact that we saw now that title transferring to Mohammed bin Salman is what's uh, sort of unprecedented. And our, our understanding, our analysis of this is that this is directly tied to the legal jeopardy that he could be put under as a result of, for example, this lawsuit that is being brought by um, Jamal Khashoggi's fiance and the organization um, Dawn Democracy for the Arab World now um, that we're that we're trying to sue MBS for his role in the gruesome murder of Khashoggi, um, and so the fact that the Biden administration is now acknowledging that as the head of state he has sovereign immunity, this isn't them sort of granting him immunity. It is somewhat standard for a fellow head of state to have immunity. But as we argue in, in the article, MBS is himself is quite unusual here, just given the, the amount of human rights abuses he's been involved with, the horrific war on Yemen, the murder of Hashogi, such that the Biden administration should be pursuing other means of accountability if they've decided that, okay, he's prime minister, now he gets he gets this sort of sovereign immunity, but we need what well, our argument is there need to be other paths towards accountability for him. And one path would be to suspend arms sales. Uh, and there's been recent movement on that front. Uh, even Senator Menendez, head of Senate for Relations, has talked about some suspending some arms, as have uh, Rokana and Senator Blumenthal. Uh, the immediate uh, precipitating cause was the uh, Saudi basically slapping Biden in the face after negotiations about whether they would reduce help reduce oil prices. Biden had gone there. There was the famous fist bump. He was basically kind of a supplicant to the Saudi regime, and, and they, um, you know, not only did they deny his um, role, but they also seem to be coordinating with Russia on oil issues, and, and they're not supporting global sanctions. So this, you mean with regards to the OPEC plus cutting oil yes, production? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So uh, this infuriated some members of Congress, especially coming before the midterms, and so it revived interest in holding Saudi accountable. But of course, the underlying reasons go back to the start of the Yemen war in 2015, the murder of Hashoji. Um, 
and this, but this may give some impetus to those efforts. Uh, and that's what we're hoping. What are the reasons that it's been so hard for a sort of reevaluation of the U.S.-Saudi partnership? What, why, why, why has there not been that reevaluation? Um, what is sort of preventing us from maybe reevaluating this relationship? Do you want to take that one, um, Anel? Yeah, I mean, I think the widespread perception has to do with ongoing U.S. dependence on fossil fuels. Um, because what what you then hear is this argument that, well, you know, the U.S., well, you hear this on the right, the U.S. just needs to, you know, drill and pump our way to energy independence. Um, and I, I think the, the issue there is to keep in mind that in 2020, the U.S. actually became the world's most significant producer of, of oil due to the, the shale oil revolution, um, the U.S. surpassed Saudi Arabia. However, as long as the US remains dependent on oil, American consumers are going to be vulnerable to decisions from massive foreign oil producers, whether it's Russia or Saudi Arabia. If Venezuelan oil were to come back online, they have some of the largest uh, documented reserves of oil in the world. So this notion that the US could, could sort of protect American consumers from these decisions by by members of OPEC, for example, is just false because oil as a globally traded commodity, the price is always going to to fluctuate depending on on sort of supply and demand uh, in, in the global marketplace. So but but arguably, I think actually the US Saudi relationship is is not only about oil at this point, and this is where I think Bill can can bring a lot more expertise to bear. But the extent to which the US at this point is is really relying very heavily on our role as as the the global weapons producer, you know, that that Saudi Arabia is our largest customer in terms of of purchasing American made uh, weapons and, and, you know, military resources. And and there are a lot of um, very vested interests that would like to maintain the Saudis as this very valuable customer. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of lobbying that goes on in Congress is that the power of the military industrial complex and the, the big five weapons producers, um, they have a lot of sway. And so I, I would say that although oil is part of it and, it, and you know, it was part of you know, Biden's decision to go to travel to, to Jeddah over the summer, um, but that arguably a lot of this is, is um, more bound up in those, those narrow interests of these big weapons producers. Bill, if you could, could you talk a little bit about the statistics when it comes to uh, U.S. arms sales, and particularly U.S. arms sales to uh, Saudi Arabia? Uh, yes. Well, um, you know, going back to the Obama administration, which also made some huge sales to the Saudis before the Yemen war, um, in the last decade, um, there's been well over $100 billion in arms offers from the U.S. to Saudi Arabia. Uh, not all of those have been completed yet in terms of contracts, deliveries, and so forth. But th there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Um, there's combat aircraft. There's attack helicopters. There's tens of thousands of bombs, many of which have been used to target uh, civilians in Yemen. Um, the the Trump administration sold slightly less than Biden, but they were uh, opposing congressional efforts to cut the flow, including a pre unprecedented votes. Uh, to impose the war powers resolution or cut sales of bombs. So Trump was almost, as well as the industry, the biggest advocate for the Saudis in the U.S. And he, in fact, referenced uh, extremely exaggerated uh, figures of U.S. jobs tied to Saudi arms sales. He, after the Khashoggi 
uh, murder indicated this. He issued a statement saying, well, um, you know, our country's our companies are getting big business over there. We can't let the Russians and Chinese take it over. Therefore, that's not going to change. Sort of whatever the Saudis do, the weapons flow is going to continue. Uh, and companies like Raytheon uh, have done extensive lobbying at the point when some of these sales were threatened. Um, you know, the CEO went into Menendez's office, pressured him. Um, they had a some people in the government, former Saudi lobbyists, who tried to give them a clean bill of health and advised Trump to do an emergency measure to squeak a particular deal by Congress. Uh, you know, so uh, these companies view this as a big ongoing source of business, and, and they're going to press for it. They, they were a little more circumspect uh, after the Khashoggi murder in terms of you know, broadcasting these positions to the world, but they're always working behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, if pressed, they will say, well, we're just doing what the government allows. But in fact, they're trying to shape that policy to make sure that it's allowed, uh, you know, in perpetuity if they had their way. And now, if you could, I guess, what are the ways in which the U.S. could maybe push back on, on uh, Saudi Arabia when it comes to issues like the Yemen war. I mean, I mean, obviously, reducing arms sales could play a role, but uh, where do you think foreign policy has to go with regards to the U.S.-Saudi relationship? I mean, specifically in terms of Yemen, um, a, a position that, that you know, we, we argue in the article and, and um, is, is essentially that, that the U.S. should, that, that Congress should pass a Yemen war powers resolution which would end all US support for what Saudi Arabia had been doing in Yemen. I should point out that at this point, you know, following the six month truce that was in place from April to October in Yemen, it has since expired, but since then we have not seen the Saudis reinitiate airstrikes, which is great. And I do it does, I think, indicate the Saudis eagerness to get out of this war. At this point, they've spent, you know, millions and not billions of dollars fighting this horrific war on their neighbor. Um, and their security situation has simply deteriorated. Um, and so I, I do think the Saudis are not eager to restart airstrikes on Yemen. But again, there's no reason they couldn't. And they've they've completely destroyed the Yemeni infrastructure. Um, and so if if they chose to restart airstrikes, they there's nothing preventing them from doing so other than Congress passing war powers resolution or some form of legislation to end US support for Saudi airstrikes because the Saudi Air Force cannot fly without spare parts and maintenance or without US military contractors. Um, and I, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, I think, is is eager to avoid the embarrassment of being in a situation where he cannot fly his own air force. The concern then I think is, well, what if the Saudis, you know, start buying Chinese weapons or Russian weapons or Turkish weapons or uh, you know, we we don't want to lose our market share as their their main supplier of weapons here. Um, and you know, part of the the problem with that argument is the specifically having to do with Russia and China. I mean, we know that that Russia would not be able; they they don't have the capacity to offer the same kind of security guarantee that the U.S. has, and that China's not interested. I think China has has very astutely observed the. The various decisions the US has made in the Middle East and is not eager to replicate them. Uh, furthermore, one sort of interesting takeaway here would be that if China were to be somewhat more involved in the Middle East, we'd likely see 
less of a rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia because at the moment, you know, the, the Chinese are buying Iranian oil and China's not really interested in providing the same kind of unequivocal support to Saudi Arabia that the US has, that has emboldened the Saudis and the Israelis, for example, to behave in ways that are very provocative towards Iran. Um, so I think that the the more actually we see perhaps a balance of power with with China being more involved in the region, we may actually see a toning down of some of these sort of Saudi Iranian tensions. Um, again, this this does go back to well, what about you know the the interests of the the big U.S. weapons producers and and you know their argument that there's so many American jobs tied to the production of these weapons. You know, that I think that's that's a false argument. There are so many other industries in the United States that would be much better jobs producers, whether it's jobs in education or healthcare or green tech. Um, and so this this just gets back to this fundamental question of, you know, it's it's not really about serving the interests of the American people to keep pumping these weapons out into the rest of the world. It's just about serving the interests of these companies and their shareholders. Uh, it's it's good to note that although these companies want this business, if they didn't have it, they've got plenty of other sources. I mean, the Pentagon budget is at one of its highest levels ever. They spend over $200 billion a year on weapons R&D and procurement. There's a huge uh, you know, tranche of tens of billions of dollars of weapons uh, going to Ukraine. So it, it because the, the kind of these companies, the more the better. Every division's got to do better every year. Profits have to go up every year. Money gets funneled into overpriced CEO pay and so forth. So it's partly corporate greed. It's not you know survival of an industry, um, and especially the most damaging weapons uh, like the bomb sales are a very tiny uh, portion of their uh, revenues. And, and and other than a couple of places where they're produced, um, are not a big factor in the U.S. economy. So. Um, and then just backtracking on the Russia-China point, um, the Saudi arsenal, especially the, the most important pieces of it that are relevant to Yemen, is so dependent on the U.S. and the U.K. It would take them, you know, a, probably a decade to shift that around to be flying, you know, Russian or Chinese planes, which would not be as, uh, you know, capable as what the U.S. is selling. So they could buy a drone from Turkey or a you know, this or that from China or Russia, but it would be more symbolic than it would be able to sustain their um, defense capability. So the U.S. has tremendous leverage, which has never been fully used and, and should be. Yeah, and I just want to say um, for my listeners, if, if they haven't kept up with this situation with Yemen, I mean, this has cost, I, I think, nearly 400,000 lives. So uh, this is a big issue. I, I guess uh, something else I also wanted to get into and maybe, Anel, you could speak to this, is, how do I put it, uh, that Saudi Arabia uh, doesn't always uh, play ball with the U.S., but we sort of bend over backwards for them at times. It, it really feels like that. What, why is that? I mean, wh why isn't this a relationship where both sides give a little? Um, it's, it seems like uh, the Saudis don't really bend for us as much as we bend for them. <sighs> Well, you know, I, I do think some of this does have to do with the fact that the U.S. is or the, the world is moving towards a multipolar order and the U.S. is just going to have to get used to that, that, you know, kind of since the end of the Cold War with the United States being accustomed to being the most powerful 
economic and military actor in the global system, we're used to other countries kind of going along with what we want and thinking that it's it's because they want to do that rather than, well, we're so powerful and they kind of just have to listen to us. Whereas now increasingly seeing um, an increasingly powerful China, seeing Russia, which is perhaps demonstrating it's not as powerful as, as people may have thought, but that, but that it is rapacious and um, throwing its weight around, that we are seeing countries um, asserting their independence. You know, so for example, the, the Saudis that historically at various points um, in history were willing to sort of increase oil production before an election, for example, to, to lower those oil prices, um, no longer being willing to do so. That's not in their national interest from the Saudis' perspective, cutting production and keeping prices high is what they need to do to carry out their their very ambitious goals. Um, you know, Mohammed bin Salman has set 2030 as this, you know, his, his vision 2030. Um, he's staked his whole reputation on this of transforming the Saudi economy. Um, so from his perspective, he's interested in, in sort of asserting Saudi dominance and Saudi independence on the global stage. China is Saudi Arabia's biggest customer. It's the biggest customer for, for all the big uh, Gulf oil producers. Um, so I think the U.S. is just going to have to get used to this, to other countries that, um, you know, when we said jump, they used to say how high. They're no longer going to do that. And, and you know, we can't bully them. You know, we're not going to go to war or we're not going to be able to force them. <laughs> uh, you know, already we're seeing an overextension of the U.S. military and an overextension of the, the goals that our massively overfunded military is trying to take on. Um, so this just gets back to the point that the U.S. is going to have to learn uh, to, to rely more on diplomacy, to rely more on compromise and, and asking other countries what it is that, that they want from us. If we want things from them, we're going to have to 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 provide them with what they want as well. Um, and that this needs to go beyond just massive arms sales. Real quick in that regard, and now if you could. I, when I've talked to people about this issue of of you know, the seeming decline of American global dominance or the emergence of a multipolar world. And it, there's a lot to unpack there, right? But uh, people will say to me, well, we still have the, the strongest military. We still have the, the best tech. Um, what do you say to people that are skeptical of the decline? Like, what, what do you think uh, people are maybe missing when they say, oh, things aren't changing as much as those of us talking about this decline may think? Well, I mean, they're certainly right that the U.S., uh, still has certainly the the by far and away the the best funded military. I think it's you know the next ten countries combined add up to the Pentagon budget. Um, but it's a it's about sort of the relative power. So it, you know the U.S. continues to pump more and more money into our military and in, into military tech, etc. But you know now we, we are seeing other countries, um, unfortunately, I think responding to this ongoing massive amounts of US funding, they're, they're responding by seeing that um, as as a signal of potential US aggression. And, you know, so China, for example, is is very much um, feeling concerned about the, the, the way that the US is, is increasingly adopting a more hostile posture towards China. Um, I mean, this this is sort of the these kind of vicious cycles where any effort that a country tries to take to build up its own security makes other countries feel less secure and so they they respond in kind um 
So, you know, I, I just to respond to, to the skeptics you were mentioning, you know, again, it's it's not that the US is declining, it's, it's just that countries all around the world are responding to this massive military power of the United States by trying to build up their own militaries as well. Uh, and parallel to that, uh, military force is not relevant to some of the most important problems in the world today. Um, pandemics, climate change, stabilizing the global economy, dealing with poverty, all of these things affect people's lives, cost people's lives, destabilize the world. But we're this kind of overdeveloped military force and we're underdeveloped in a lot of the other tools that are more relevant to playing a role in a world where power is more diffused. Uh, you know, years ago, a Yale political scientist, Paul Kennedy, wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. And one of the things he noted was this kind of military overextension as being one element in, in accelerating uh, declining power of kind of the, the top uh, country at any given moment. So it's sort of like the United States, if it wants to maintain influence in the world, we're betting on the wrong horse. We're investing in the wrong areas. Uh, and so that, I think, detracts from our, our ability to be a constructive player and, and serve our own interests. I think that's a very good point. I, I also wanted to just to touch on the multipolar uh, world issue. I see a lot of people that will say talk of a multipolar world is just this. I, I mean, people will say, oh, you hear this talking point from, um, you know, outlets like RT, that it's just a propaganda talking point. And I think that's not exactly entirely true. I think there are, you know, propaganda outlets that are cheerleading the multipolar world. But I think from an analytical approach, you know, in a lot of ways, when we talk about the multipolar world, like in this discussion, we're talking about something that we're not saying it's necessarily going to be all peaches and cream or that it's something we are cheerleading. It's just something that seems to be happening um, that, that we're moving towards. And it's it's going to present its own challenges, I think, in a way uh, for good and ill. Yeah, it's a reality that has to be dealt with. But, you know, Putin and RT propaganda all good propagandas, they, they see some fact and then they use it for their own purposes. Uh, so Putin will say, well, the U.S. invaded Iraq. I can invade Ukraine. I mean, that's ridiculous, given the crimes he's committing there. Um, but it's it's the kind of thing that is done. And, and so it doesn't mean that there's not a legitimate point to be made there in a different context. Uh, so I think that's kind of a red herring, but it's been used extensively in the U.S. debate in ways that are counterproductive. Yeah, no, I absolutely would would agree with the point that it's it's um, multipolar systems are are less stable, unfortunately. I mean, like the the world under a unipolar system, the U.S. was the most powerful, and in some ways, because the U.S. was so powerful, the U.S. policymakers went and pursued dumb wars, like in Iraq specifically, or or you know other military interventions that were not necessary for US national security, although they were portrayed as such. Um, and, you know, now under a system where the US is actually dealing with something like like China, uh, you know, a fellow nuclear power with a, a massive economy and, and um, you know, the thought of an actual war with China, I, I think, you know, the reason I get concerned about this is because you have an American public and especially a US foreign policy establishment that is used to operating under the the sort of status quo or the principles of US hegemony and thinking that we can sort of tell other countries what to do and that and that they'll just go along with us. 
Whereas now, you know, I, I don't think people quite comprehend what what a war with China would actually mean because we aren't used to thinking in those terms. Um, or, or a war with Russia, for example, that we're getting, you know, this this escalation over the war in Ukraine. Of course, you know, it's it's horrifying what Russia is doing to Ukraine, but but the scale of what could happen if the US and Russia were in fact to go head to head and engage in direct confrontation in this nuclear war. I mean, this is <laughs> this is the Cold War all over again, or the, the worst fears of what the Cold War could have led to is nuclear Armageddon. Um, and, and again, I, I just don't think Americans are, are quite used, and specifically the U.S. foreign policy establishment isn't used to operating under conditions where, where we do have to compromise or we have to be willing to make these hard choices in order to avoid worse outcomes. So that being said, I, I mean, a, as we sort of move, move towards a more multipolar order, it, it makes sense that, you know, U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia are going to, you know, maintain ties with Russia and China, because they're, I, I guess, hedging their bets in a lot of ways. At, at the same time, uh, you know, they're very dependent on U.S. weapons and spare parts. So it, it sounds like the U.S. has more leverage with Saudi Arabia than sometimes maybe uh, people realize in some ways. Well, the leverage has never been fully used. Um, and I think it's most relevant to the Yemen case, uh, because it would affect their ability to restart uh, airstrikes and, and, and intervention there. Um, whether that would, um, you know, more broadly allow the U.S. to influence Saudi in any number of areas seems less likely. Um, but there is that very specific area where the U.S. could, could do a lot of good by by shifting years. You want to comment on that, um, Anel, or? Yeah, you know, I, I think it does just get back to the the point Bill was making earlier about the vested interests here that want to maintain the Saudis as a customer. They're a very valuable customer, and and the the big weapons producers have no interest in pissing them off or or making them feel that they want to go buy a lot of weapons elsewhere. Um, you know, there there is this question about leverage is most powerful um, when it's not used. The concern being that if the U.S. were to to use this leverage, you know, to, to cut off arms sales to the Saudis, for example, and then we'd lose them as a customer. But I think this does just get back to, well, what's the big loss there? You know, if the U.S. is no longer pumping weapons into this part of the world, that would be good for this part of the world. We'd see less violence. We'd see these countries behaving in ways that are that are not so combative towards their neighbors. Again, whether it's Israel or Saudi Arabia or the UAE, et cetera. Um, I do think we've created kind of a moral hazard in the Middle East where we have countries that are accustomed to this notion that the US is going to back them up if they engage in aggressive behaviors like this unnecessary Saudi war against Yemen. Uh, that the U.S. will will come in support them, and and thus far that is what we've done because we're we're so concerned about losing them as a customer. But again, that the interests being served there are not the interests of of the American people; they're just the interests of these big weapons manufacturers. Also, I know you mentioned it in the article, but you talk a little bit about the War Powers Resolution and how the threat of that resolution may have um, helped pressure the Saudis in certain ways. Could you both speak to that, or I don't know which one of you wants to take that question, but. I can start. So, you know, essentially, we, we saw the truce come to play um, in Yemen following some major attacks by the Houthis on the Saudis. So, you know, I, I do think part of the reason we saw the truce go into play was because the Houthis had demonstrated that they could really 
threaten Saudi security, again, at a time when MBS is, has put all his eggs in the basket of promoting Saudi Arabia as this, this secure location for investment and tourism and, and really wanting to transform the Saudi economy, which in many ways is, is admirable, although MBS himself is, is a brutal dictator. I do support an effort to try to get Saudi Arabia off of oil. I think that's crucial for the future of the planet for the Saudis to not try and pump every last uh, gallon of oil that they possess. Um, and so transforming the Saudi economy would be part of that. Um, and so the, the fact that the Houthis have demonstrated that they that they can hurt the Saudis or they can get the Saudis where it hurts uh, is part of what had to do with the timing there. However, more broadly, what we've seen over time is when the US had threatened to, to cut off uh, weapons, for example, or to, to cut off spare parts and maintenance, such as when Congress did pass a war powers resolution, which was then vetoed by President Trump, um, we saw a decline in Saudi airstrikes at that time. And so we, we know that the Saudis are aware of the fact that if the US cuts off support, they would again be left in this humiliating position of not being able to fly their own air force. Um, and earlier this year, we saw two members of Congress, DeFazio and, and uh, Jayapal, saying that they would bring a war powers resolution. Um, and, and again, it was it was in the subsequent months that we saw this truce happen. So in, in general, I, I think that while the U.S. Um, doesn't have a lot of, of influence over what happens in Yemen specifically, I think it's important to keep in mind that the Yemenis need to be able to to work out this, this civil war themselves. But as long as it remains an internationalized civil war with the Saudis and Emiratis and the Iranians involved, it is likely to continue. And so I think what the US really needs to do at this point is to use whatever leverage we can to pressure the Saudis to, to get out or to be minimally involved, to get pressure the Emiratis to get out. Um, we don't have a lot of leverage with the Iranians, but that's our own fault. You know, we've, we've done, <laughs> we have in no way tried to, to build a, a functional relationship with Iran. Um, so, so again, just the more that the U.S. is able to operate in the Middle East as as sort of um, an actual trusted mediator that that isn't so biased towards one side or the other, um, the more leverage we're, we're likely to develop or the more we're able to to operate in a way that that could be productive in trying to resolve conflicts as opposed to just, again, flooding the region with weapons. Bill, would you want to add to that? And also, I want to get your thoughts on ways in which we could see a foreign policy at some point that, you know, decouples the interests of the U.S. arms industry from U.S. foreign policy. You know, how could we see a change like that happen in uh, U.S. foreign policy? Well, uh, on the Saudi point, um, we're kind of headed in the wrong direction. Um, between the Abraham Accords, which they're not part of, but have been sort of quietly supportive, at least of the idea of closer ties between the Gulf states and Israel, there's a danger that becoming kind of sort of a militarized anti-Iran containment alliance. And that'll just increase tensions and the possibility even of a war in the future, rather than encouraging dialogue, which there had been some uh, between the Saudis and Iran. Um, you know, so we're sort of pushing things in the more militarized direction instead of trying to resolve these problems uh, diplomatically and economically. Um, in terms of decoupling the arms industry from U.S. foreign policy, you know, we've got to weaken their power here uh, to shape foreign policy. So part of that is coming up with alternatives to employ people because they, of course, they have their own interests in boosting their profits, but they can also point 
to a senator or a congressman and say, well, you know, uh, we're building this system in your district um, that's premised on continuing to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. Do you want to go before your constituents and say, oh, I'll get jobs in my district? So there's been various proposals of how to do that. It's it's really depends on investment in other areas. I mean, if the Pentagon's going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on weapons, that's going to have a huge economic footprint. But if we can get uh, green technology and green investments up and running, there's been some progress under Biden, but we need uh, much more, uh, then it'll be easier to create alternative employment for some of these folks. Um, and I think probably it's, some of it will be kind of regional and local economic development issues rather than Lockheed Martin making solar panels, which I think might be uh, dangerous just given their history of cost overruns. Uh, but anyway, I think there are ways to do that. Um, and also their power in Washington, um, their ability to send members through the revolving door either into government uh, four of the last five defense secretaries came from the arms industry, uh, from General Dynamics, uh, from Raytheon, from Boeing. Many more people go in and out. Thousands come out of government to lobby for these companies. So that's got to be dealt with. Campaign contributions to some degree, although they're not the biggest players in that. I, I think really the jobs, the revolving door, their influence over government decisions and what what are the security threats. They're on some of these panels uh, there was a National Defense Strategy Commission appointed by Congress that said, oh, you know, actually the Pentagon's not being ambitious enough. we got to spend more than they're projecting. More than half of the members of that came from the industry or were funded by the industry. So all these ways that they have their tentacles into policymaking on the domestic front, I think, also have to be addressed. And then I think, you know, we have to promote a vision of what's what role the U.S. should play in the world. Uh, and if it's not a militarized role, if it's not as an armed hegemon, then I think you can generate more public support for the kind of changes that would be needed to reduce the influence of the arms industry. Two points there, um, William, if you could, and I don't, I don't know if you have any numbers offhand, but like, like to give an idea of, uh, I guess what could be called Washington's arms sales addiction. Uh, just how how much in terms of money, how how, how much do we sell uh, to regimes like, you know, the one in Saudi Arabia? There was a government accountability office report that said there's been about 54 billion in contracts to Saudi Arabia and the UAE in the last about five years. And as I said, there's much more in the pipeline. But you know, overall, the U.S. sells about 39 or 40 percent of the whole global arms trade. Um, Russia's about half of that. China's about one eighth of that. So it's the big player. Um, and there's different statistics thrown around about how much money flows in a given year, but uh, certainly in the tens of billions of dollars and the U.S. being the leading player. And it's it's a, a kind of a profit booster and supplement to the money the companies get uh, from the Pentagon. And also there's certain uh, items like F-16s and, and other things that the Pentagon doesn't buy anymore that are sustained entirely uh, from foreign sales. So, so those companies and members from those areas are particularly tied to the idea of, of pushing weapons out the door. It's interesting. Uh, before before we started this uh, conversation, I was reading another article you wrote um, in which you talk about how the majority of Americans are against arming uh, repressive regimes like Saudi Arabia and even consider arms sales uh, to be a hazard to U.S. security. So it, it sounds like, um, you know, the sentiments we're sharing here are not as uncommon amongst the American people as some may think at first. 
Uh, yeah, I think part of it is a lack of information. Uh, very few people think about the fact that the U.S. is the biggest arms supplier in the world or the kinds of regimes that we support or the consequences of how those weapons are used. Uh, so that's a big challenge. Um, and then I think the second challenge is uh, uh, applicable to practically every policy issue we face is whether people think we can make a difference. You know, do their do their voices make a difference? Um, and as we indicated in the Saudi case, when Congress has acted, we've seen some changes that, that have saved people's lives. So it's sort of like, can people understand that we got to put pressure on now. There may be some changes in the short term, but this is a long-term struggle. Uh, and, and do people have kind of the attention span and investment to do that? It doesn't have to be, you know, majority of Americans, but it would have to be a larger cohort than is paying attention now. You know. Before we close out, um, Anel, I just wanted to ask, uh, with regards to Yemen and also just more broadly the Middle East, what do you think the biggest misunderstandings? Uh, that you know, either the foreign policy establishment or even just average Americans have about the situation in Yemen, and then in addition to that, more broadly, just the Middle East in general. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think to start at the with the second part, I think there's a big misperception that that U.S. involvement is always helpful, or that the U.S. is a force for good in the world. And unfortunately, I do think that often U.S. involvement. Is, is often not a force for good, obviously cases like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, but also just this notion that that the US has to be involved or that if we're not involved, um, chaos will ensue. And I, I do think this goes back to sort of the, the multipolarity argument that increasingly we are seeing parts of the world um, where the US is, is simply overextended and, and just doesn't have the bandwidth to try to go and 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 be involved and that this can actually be for the best that it doesn't require U.S. involvement always for for countries to to sort out their problems, especially because U.S. involvement, as as Bill was saying, does tend to take a, a militarized form that we've let other parts of our foreign policy establishment atrophy. You think about the size of the Pentagon as composed to the size of the State Department, for example, or um, even the extent to which U.S. diplomacy tends to rely on the threat of military force rather than understanding that it's, it's going to require compromise if we're going to move forwards. Um, so I think that's a big misperception. In terms of, of Yemen, um, something Bill was saying just now made me think of the ways that other um, big industries lost power over time. You think about you know big tobacco or something or big pharma, the ways that these industries became stigmatized, that it was no longer acceptable for members of Congress to accept donations from from big tobacco, for example, or you know the the way that that um, we're finally seeing some accountability for some of these these big pharmaceutical companies that you know created the opioid epidemic, for example. And so increasingly, I, I do think that if Americans are are holding their members of Congress accountable, saying, "Look, we're we're not going to to vote for candidates that accept big donations from or accept any donations from from these big weapons companies." Um, you know, just follow the money. I think it's something that Americans are aware of and that they they see as as a problem that's too big to handle. But again, just just the examples of 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 you know other industries that were previously seen as acceptable sources of donations that are no longer accepted. Um, you know, it, it's happened in the past. It can happen again if if people put pressure on on their elected officials. Uh, 
Do you think with regards to Yemen, um, do you think there's also an issue of, I think people want to talk about, oh, you know, the, the Iranians are stoking problems in Yemen. Do you think some people forget about the actual Yemenis at times and that that's also a problem with how we look at the issue? Certainly, that's a problem in, in the U.S. foreign policy establishment, that the issue of Yemen was, has been seen through this lens of, you know, going after Iranian influence or we, you know, we have to support Saudi objectives here. And the people of Yemen have themselves absolutely been forgotten. Um, you know, I think it's it's hard right now. I think a lot of Americans are sort of tired of being the bad guys and the narrative in the Middle East, you know, acknowledging the the huge um, mistakes made in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria. And it's part of why I think we've seen so much attention on the war in Ukraine, because Americans can kind of feel like we're, we're, we're on the, the right side here. We're supporting you know, the Ukrainians and their fight against Russia, um, which I understand. You know, it's, it's hard to, to feel that we're that we're on the wrong side of things. But, you know, I think in the case of Yemen, this this is somewhere where people can reach out to their member of Congress to say, you know, support this Yemen War Powers Resolution or, or or some kind of legislation to hold the Saudis accountable to prevent them from restarting airstrikes. Um, this is something that is is active in Congress right now. We have over 130 members of Congress that have said they would support a War Powers Resolution. And so if this is something that people care about, if they do care about Yemen, call your member of Congress, call your senator, tell them to support this because it's it's something that we are trying to get done before the 117th Congress. Once we get to the new Congress, all of those co-sponsors for the, the Yemen War Powers Resolution will evaporate. Uh, so all this effort that's been made to try to hold Saudi Arabia accountable here will, will disappear. Um, so again, if, if, if people listening do, do care, uh, reach out, call your member of Congress. I, I wanted to get both of you to give maybe your final thoughts uh, just about what we've been talking about here, whether it's about U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia or some of the broader issues we touched upon. William, do you want to go first and then now you can get the final word? Yeah, well, we've covered a lot. Um, and I'm glad to hear with Anel, who has some amazing points to make and is more expert in the region in particular. Um, well, I think, you know, it goes back to what I mentioned. It, you know, the long-term uh, fight is to change people's perceptions of what a constructive role is for the U.S. in the world. Um, and as long as people are attached to this idea of, well, more for defense, more for the Pentagon is a good thing. It's an insurance policy uh, against, you know, bad things happening. Um, the U.S. has to be involved everywhere or we're weak or isolationist. Um, engagement on the diplomatic and economic level is somehow dismissed in many quarters as not being engagement. You know, if it's not military, it doesn't count. Right. It's, um, not to interrupt you, but it's like... Um... You know, for all the problems we have with China, I mean, I think there is room for cooperation on certain issues like climate change, um, but we don't hear a lot about that all the time. Right, exactly. So um, to some degree, it's it's a, um, a paradigm shift, a shift in public consciousness. And then I think policymakers just, if you're just like a, a rational policymaker, even if you want the U.S. to be as influential as possible in the world, uh, the current course is not going to produce that result. So. I think there's some pragmatic arguments that might work in the Washington establishment, but also uh, a broader uh, conversation nationally about who is the United States, what's our best role in the world, what will serve our interests and the interests of global peace and stability. And and that conversation is not having uh, on as robust a level as, as it needs to be. 
And Anel, do you want to just give maybe some final comments? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with with everything Bill just said that it, it will take a paradigm shift. And and I you know I, I do think a lot of it gets back to a lot of you know the the points Bill was making about the the sort of the way power and money flows in Washington and the extent to which there's this notion that that the U.S. being involved in the rest of the world is helpful and it's it helps keep Americans safe when in fact you know pumping these these massive amounts of weapons out into the rest of the world contributes to instability and and you know the the interests that are being served there really are just the the very narrow interests of these these big weapons manufacturers and their stockholders and so again if we could get back to a place of Americans, you know, I think many Americans do want to 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 see ourselves as as a force for good in the rest of the world, and, and that 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 simply cannot come about if the primary way the U.S. is operating is through violence and through through weapons that that we're sending all over. So Real quick, in that regard, if I could just interject, I think one of the problems that I see with a lot of people is they'll say, "Well, you know, the weapons manufacturers and arms sales may be bad, but." You know, the, the F-35 boondoggle uh, created a lot of jobs for Americans. And I'm like, well, there's other ways we can create jobs other than selling arms. Exactly. I mean, and this this gets back to to Bill's points about, you know, green tech and just I mean, if you look kind of dollar for dollar, you know, an investment in, in the weapons industry doesn't create as many jobs as the, you know, the healthcare industry or you know, education. You know, these these are sectors where we know, you know, the, the United States is is falling behind. You know, our healthcare system is broken. Our education system isn't isn't working, um, and yet we continue to pump so much money into the weapons sector, which is which is you know fueling violence. And as you know, as as we've pointed out here, if we want to cooperate on climate change and you know save the planet, we can't we can't get that way by continuing to fund violence you know we we really do have to to implement a paradigm shift here in in the way that we operate um with our with our allies and with our partners but also with our adversaries that for the sake of the future of the planet you know we we can't bomb our way out of these problems so you know mostly i just want to reiterate and the the excellent points that that bill made and you know to to thank you for drawing attention to some of these really big thorny issues and and just remind people that you know we're still a democracy we you still can call your member of Congress, you know the the outreach that i've done on the hill. I think just reiterates the extent to which when members hear from constituents they they do listen, you know a phone call really makes a big difference. Online petitions, not so much I don't I don't think those really have an effect, but you know calling your member of Congress really does matter. As my um, friend who's been on the show before uh, the scholar. Stephen Kinzer always says to me, call your local Congress people, torment the Congress critters. <laughs> well, thank you again, Dr. Anel Schlein and William Hartung for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, I'm assuming that they can, uh, my listeners can keep up with your work just at the Quincy Institute, right? Yes, you have at, at Quincy on Twitter, um, as long as Twitter's still a thing. Uh, yeah, very, very, um, and and you know, Bill is is quite prolific. He has a, a weekly column that comes out at Forbes, um, where you can follow all of his excellent work. Next up, Doug Bandal, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan, joins us for a wide-ranging conversation 
about the hubris of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, or as we like to call it here, the U.S. foreign policy blob. We'll cover a number of different topics, including, interestingly enough, Ronald Reagan and Abel Archer 83, an often under-discussed NATO exercise that very nearly brought us to the point of nuclear war. We'll also be discussing U.S. policy with regards to North Korea, China, Haiti, and much, much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Doug Bandow. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy speaking with, Doug Bandow, a former special assistant uh, to President Ronald Reagan. Uh, his work can be found in American Conservative, Antiwar.com, and a number of other outlets. How are you doing today? Doing okay. How about yourself? Very good. Very good. Although there is so much going on in the foreign policy <laughs> world right oh, now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Haiti, China, uh, there's issues with, with Turkey and Syria. Uh, yep. What do you think the biggest right now is in regards to international relations and U.S. foreign policy? Well, it is hard to say. I was writing this morning about the protests in China. I mean, I would I would probably say at the moment it's still Russia, Ukraine, because it's a hot war. The U.S. is fighting, clearly fighting a proxy war. The potential for expansion and escalation is serious. We're dealing with a nuclear power. So I, I'd probably say that one, because I think what could go wrong quickly I mean, you saw the reaction to you know, the missile to Poland, where everybody kind of collectively held their breath to find out if it was a Russian missile. And it's clear the Ukrainians were doing their best to, oh, yeah, of course it is. Please, you guys got to come in now. Uh, you know, So that, I think, is probably, I'd say, the most dangerous. You know, long term, it's China. And I think the Taiwan is very, very volatile. Uh, the, you know, it's important to the Chinese. My guess is that they're that given their concerns over America's position, we may see them move more quickly. I don't think they have a time frame, but I do think they look at international events. And that would, you know, I mean, if we got involved there, it's a real war, you know, right next to another country. It's thousands of miles from home. That'd be a disaster. You know, and I mean, <laughs> North Korea is building gobs of missiles and well, nukes and, uh, you know, doesn't want to talk to us. And, well, that could get very interesting. So there's, and then, of course, we have Iran and a lot of, I mean, there's so, there is so much going on. It really is an overload for anyone who covers international affairs. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think maybe the U.S. foreign policy establishment or what we like to call here the blob, the U.S. foreign policy blob is getting wrong now, especially with regards to, uh, say, China, or the Ukraine-Russia war. And how would you relate that maybe to your past experiences? I I, I guess what I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, I know you worked with uh, uh, Ronald Reagan as a special assistant, and I've been thinking a lot lately about Abel Archer 83, the, the military exercise. Right. People forget about that. We almost came very close yes. to nuclear war, and people also forget. I think that that incident spooked Ronald Reagan a lot, and he did back off a little and, and become more prone to, I, I think, diplomatic negotiation. He wasn't as um, maybe hawkish immediately after Abel Archer. Well, I think that, I mean, Reagan was very anti-communist. He viewed the Soviet Union as an evil empire. And I'm perfectly happy with that name because it was. Uh, and and I think he, he really thought the Soviets understood we had no interest in war. 
And I think that, and, you know, people, you know, called him a mad cowboy and stuff. And he wasn't, he actually, when he was briefed on, you know, the issue of mutual assured destruction, you know, if the Soviets fire, what can we do? Oh, well, we can just blow up Moscow. I mean, he was horrified. I mean, you know, he looked at that and thought, this is crazy. You're telling me that my only response is to kill millions of people, but I don't stop anything. I, so, and I think Abel Archer really suddenly convinced him, oh my, they really are work. Because I mean, and you hear that with Russia and China. Well, of course, they know we would never do X, but they don't actually. And, you know, maybe we think they should, but that's not the relevant issue. The issue is, what do they actually think? Well, it turns out the Kremlin, I mean, Abel Archer, there's a book out there. I mean, I encourage anybody interested in these issues, pick it up and read it. It's extraordinary. I mean, you know, one of the stories was the East German agent who broke protocol to contact his handler to say, look, nothing's going on. You know, I mean, I go by the defense ministry. Nobody's there in West Germany. I mean, if they're applauding war. Right. Every light would be. You know, I mean, it was those kind, some really good stories of just how, oh, my, this is scary stuff. And that yeah, really just for people that don't know, it was a NATO exercise, I think, from November 1983. And it's it's odd because I never heard anyone talk about it. But, you know, to me, reading about it, it seems like the closest we came to nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, I think that part of it is it, it took a while for us to understand how close we came. It was an annual exercise. The problem in 83 was we changed some of the procedures. So you have the Soviets who, number one, you'll perceive Reagan is rapidly hostile, has a military buildup. And then they see, oh, these exercises, they'd be a perfect cover for an attack. And then they notice all these changes in the exercises, which, you know, this is just NATO doing whatever NATO was doing. The Soviets interpret that as saying, see, it's different from the other ones. I mean, everything came together. I mean, it is one of those, ironically, that you know, West Germany was you know, riven with East German spies. And that did help because all the East German spies, none of them could find any evidence that anybody planned anything. Finally, the Soviets calmed down. And I do think that you know, this wasn't quite as dangerous as the Cuban Missile Crisis simply because, I mean, you know, we were close to you know, ordering strikes. And I mean, the, you know, the Soviets were close to <laughs> have subs sinking our ships. I mean, that, wow, that one was really there. But Abel Archer, I think, was much closer than most people realize. And part of it, I think, was the U.S. defense establishment was embarrassed. Who wanted to go tell the American people, oops, uh, we almost blew up the world because we had this silly little exercise. But Reagan, after that, decided he really needed to talk to the Soviet leadership. And he made an initiative. And his comment at the time, I mean, he had some good lines, was they keep dying on me. Right. I mean, Brezhnev dies, Andropov dies, Chanyenka dies. I mean, three of them died in a row very quickly. Finally got to Gorbachev. And I think this is where Reagan's great and what he deserves extraordinary credit for is he understood Gorbachev was different and he could deal with him. And you know, I mean, you read his diary. A lot of the right wingers were mad at him. Norman Podhort said he was a uh, oh, an appeaser and all. That. And Reagan didn't care. I mean, Reagan said, we've got to stop this. And, uh, you know, so I give him a lot of credit for that. But I think Reagan yeah, and, and his whole, you know, the Star Wars missile defense. I mean, he thought he viewed that as being defined something other than mutual assured destruction. You can argue whether you think it's sensible. And I think the main problem is it's very hard to make anything like that work. Shooting, shoot, you know, you can you know, you might shoot a lot of missiles off and get some coming down, but you're not likely to get nearly enough that would prevent, you know, like a mutual assured destruction. But I think that was also an element of his saying, Let, let's break the paradigm. Um, yeah, and like I didn't work on those issues when I worked for him. I worked on more economic. I worked on third world development and so you know a number of other things. Um, but 
I, I was very much a non-interventionist at the time. I was in favor of the nuclear freeze and whatever, but it wasn't my my area, so I didn't do that inside the administration. But I was very happy kind of reading things afterwards, finding out what Reagan was thinking on these issues, thinking, well, good. I mean, in contrast, I'm Al Haig and some of the others there. You know, we need people like that. And it's under I'd say what we have to what worries me today is that we have people who, you know, I mean, I mean, it's it's the hubris and it's the sanctimony. So, I mean, you have Washington is filled with people who believe U.S. policymakers are vestal virgins wandering the world, seeking to do good, which, of course, everyone understands. And if you resist us, it just shows how evil you are, because you should know we're bombing you for your own good. So why would you resist? You know, I mean, why, oh, why would China build weapons? I mean, I, you get this. You're thinking, excuse me. You know, I mean, you're getting complaints. Well, they're going to you know, radically increase their nuclear force. Well, I wish they didn't. But, of course, they're much, much smaller than the U.S. That, I think, tells us they fear us. And, well, if you don't want them to do it, you can't just say, oh, you shouldn't do it. We're nice people. We wouldn't use our nukes on you. I mean, and it's it's almost everything. I mean. You know, what's going on in terms of the people of Iran is hideous, you know, and, you know, people say, oh, you know, we, we need to you know, do something to really help the Iranian people. Well, that's fine. But give me an answer of what you would actually do that might help. And oh, by the way, why have we spent all these years sucking up to the dictatorships in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and United Arab Emirates and Egypt? You know that I mean, our message of believing in human rights is somewhat tainted and it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to help people in Iran. You know, if you can find a practical way to do so. But again, there's that weird sense that, well, of course we have to deal with the Saudis. I mean, you know, well, that's just the way it is. You're thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, over here, you just suddenly, you know, uh, I mean, and I think Russia is the same way, is that Vladimir Putin's responsible for this war. There's no doubt. But the U.S. and the allies helped bring it on. They created circumstances that, and, and the Russians told us many times, expansion of NATO, you know, and then, and I mean, the people, I mean, they, they hated the war against Serbia. There's a lot that goes into that. But the point is, no one in Washington wants to take any responsibility. Not us, right? Yeah, you know, look at Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis are dead because of a U.S. invasion. We didn't kill them all, but we triggered sectarian conflict. And who in Washington was ever punished? And as far as I can tell, all those attitudes are still there. You know, well, of course, we need to do everything in you know, uh, against you, you, you for Ukraine. Of course, we have to defend Taiwan. Of course, we have to. Well, look at the consequences. I was just going to add really quickly to that. I mean, we see that with this issue with North Korea. I mean, North Korea with the new ICBM tests, I think it's showing that the policy we have on North Korea right now uh, maybe is up for more scrutiny and um, questioning. Yeah, I mean, number one is, you know, I mean, Trump deserves credit for talking to Kim Jong-un. I mean, the foreign policy, the blob, as it's appropriately called, was horrified. How on earth could we talk to that evil dictator and not get anything? I mean, to merely talk to you is a reward, right? So you have to give us something so we talk to you. Well, no, it's like diplomatic relations. We should have relations. I mean, imagine the Cold War if we didn't talk to the Soviets. Imagine the Cuban Missile Crisis if you didn't have an embassy and Natalie Dobrina could wander down and you know go speak to Robert Kennedy or whatever. I mean, uh, that would be very scary. So, I mean, it's a number one. You know, I mean, you know, we, we and then you, you go. I mean, so Trump had it right. And, and the second is we blew it at Hanoi. Now, the point is not that we necessarily had to agree to what you know, Kim pro proposed, but we needed to understand that for him to go back empty handed. 
you know, and you know, his, I mean, even though he's the he's the guy on top, it doesn't mean there aren't influential forces, including the military, who like their big toys, that he would have to be prepared to tell them, you know, we're giving some away. He goes back empty-handed. That was undoubtedly extraordinarily embarrassing, and it might have been a, a political problem for him. We just don't know the you know inner circle very well. And he it's pretty clear after that he decided no more talking. It's not worth it. That the only way he'd get uh, you know sanctions relief was to agree to give up all of his nukes, and he wouldn't do that. You know, we needed to say, look, we can do this. We're going to have to negotiate a bit more on the specifics. We think you're asking for too much, but. You know, I think we can come to an accommodation. We can give you some of that sanctions relief, snap back, you know, if you don't comply. But then and here's what we want. You know, and getting rid of Young Beyond would have been useful. Let's find ways to put a cap on your program, that kind of a thing. And it's virtually no one in Washington believes that North Korea will ever agree to denuclearization. I certainly don't. I mean, it's just off the table. You know, it's hard enough to denuclearize a country that doesn't have nukes, right? Don't build them. Once they have them and the infrastructure and everything, give them up. The only country that's done that is South Africa. It had very few and it had unique circumstances, the chain coming coming change of government, you know, with the, the you know ANC taking over, et cetera. So I think we've got to be prepared to accept they are a nuclear power. You know, statements that we can't let them become one is kind of done. I mean, they have the estimates vary 40, 50, 60, I don't know, the numbers go up, but uh, they have nukes. And it's we have to come up then with essentially an arms control strategy. I don't, we don't have to call it arms control if we don't want to. We come up with a strategy of trying to move towards lower nuclear levels, caps on their production, you know, you know limits in terms of uh, proliferation, and offer them what they want, which frankly is going to be a you know, set of sanctions relief. Offer them more the more they give us. But I, I just you don't see that here. It's just well, of course we. Can. Oh my goodness, how could we ever? Agree to that. Well, give me a better option, and no one has one. So, I initially asked you to come on to talk a little bit about Haiti. You have a piece in American Conservative uh, called "Stop Invading Haiti," and you know, there's talk now that there's U.S. officials that want to. I guess they're pushing to send in armed foreign force um, as Haiti is facing a lot of crises right now. Uh, it's very interesting because, in some ways, I think. Uh, you have the same criticism a lot of people I know on the left have, which is, you know, our history in Haiti is very checkered. <laughs> Look, Haiti is an enormous tragedy. I mean, and, and one thing that makes it so tragic, it is, it is the one place on earth where the slaves liberated themselves. I mean, you know, who can't cheer as they throw off the French, you know, I mean, of course, the French, you know, threatened to come back and demanded reparations or payments for, you know, I mean, compensation for all the slave owners. You know, I mean, so they had to give up part of their wealth to do that. It's you know, really extraordinary. Uh, you know, and, I mean, they've gone through hell over the last couple hundred years. You know, they were freed in the early 1800s. I mean, they've had more, you know, slightly more than 200 years of lots of coups and strong men. And, you know, I mean, all sorts of stuff. And the U.S. was in there uh, in the earlier part of the 20th century. So and what's going I mean, I was there, I don't know, six, seven years ago. I mean, it's one of the poorest countries. I mean, I probably put it along with South Sudan in terms of impoverished countries I visited where you're just like, wow. I mean, this is so hard of a life for people that uh, I mean, what people are having to put up with and, and live through. Uh, and I mean, it's a real mess now. I mean, last year, the, the president was murdered. I mean, you know, there, I mean, some people think he was murdered by people associated with his successor. Could have been drug gangs. I mean, today the drug gangs or the gangs generally, many of whom have drugs, but not all, 
uh, you know, the, the gangs are kind of in control. I mean, it's, it's hideous. But the U.S. has been there before. I mean, where they're like the U.N. had a mission that like that ended what, six years ago, and this is where they're at. So the idea that well, if we, all we do is put a U.N. mission, that'll fix things as well. What happened? You know, what happened last time? The uh, I mean, as far as I can tell, it looks like there's very strong sentiment among Haitians against it. Now the problem, of course, is you know we don't have a poll of the whole population. We don't have. We haven't had a referendum. Nevertheless, there are a number of civic groups, you know, NGOs and others who have come together saying, don't do this. I mean, they, there are other things they want in terms of support from the international community, but they don't want an invasion. You know, and I mean, New York Times and others have gone out on the street and talked to people and you find people on the street saying, no, that won't be helpful. You know, we've been through that. You know, so to my mind is, OK, if you don't have the people who want it are the elite who are in control. And that should cause us to be a little skeptical. I mean, the president or the prime minister really has no, I mean, it's not even clear how legally he's prime minister. He's kind of there because he claimed to be, yeah, I mean, there, there's a whole complication in terms of the president before he was killed, who he's appointing and all that. You know, but I mean, it's because the you know, U.S. and the other countries say we believe he's the prime minister. It doesn't really make him the prime minister. You know, and the elites want the U.S. there. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, the elites are in control. Of course they want us there. That, then they stay in control. You know, I don't have a good answer for Haiti, but I just don't see how, you know, invading again, you know, I mean, especially if there's pretty strong opposition, you know, the drug gangs couldn't def you know, defeat the U.S. or, you know, I mean, other forces in a straight on conventional conflict. But I mean, who wants to, you know, I mean, the U.N. forces engaged in shootings with, uh, you know, gangs and I mean, civilians were killed. I mean, it's not as if, you know, a peacekeeper is going in there won't have to fight. And you know, we, we have to think all of this through. And I just don't see that as having been done. I was going to say, too, I, I think there's the history of U.S. involvement in Haiti goes back a long time. And it seems oh, like yeah. each time it hasn't necessarily benefited uh, Haitians, yes. even going back to like 1914. Yep. No, I think that's right. I mean, the question of who benefited in 1914, again, I mean, we should have no illusions here that generally when we go in, it's not as if we're putting people in the barrio up on top. I mean, we're going in at the behest of a commercial class and a political class who are, for the most part, I think you know, they're in charge, but they're frustrated when they're not quite so in charge. Because today, even if you're theoretically in charge and have money, you're vulnerable. You know, bring in the outsiders and they hopefully they can kind of work things out for you. And uh, yeah, I mean, our 19, I mean, we went in there for specific people in terms of who we helped. Not at all clear that go. And look, I mean, you know, the, the saga of Aristide. You know, at one point we're restoring him to power, and then the other point we're getting him bundled off to was it South Africa or something? It's like, well, wait, you know, this guy was elected. Now we're well, we're going to force him out. Well, I thought we were for democracy. Well, it turns out only kind of. Uh, so yeah, I just think let's you know, if others want to organize something, I mean, I could see the U.S. providing some financial aid and. You know, I mean, certainly humanitarian and other things. I just don't see this as being something we want the U.S. getting involved in, and certainly not organizing and leading others. Before we start closing out, I know you're you're writing a lot about China right now. Um, I know you had an article recently about how the economic war with China is not cheap. You've also written about U.S. and Philippine relations and how that uh, plays into the China thing. So what do you think the flashpoints are when it comes to U.S. policy on China? Well, the most important flashpoint is Taiwan. Uh, I mean, we just don't get it. In the, you know, I mean, Americans don't have much sense of history. You know, I mean, I wrote a piece once for Responsible Statecraft saying, if you want to understand Taiwan, think of the American Civil War. 
which is the North could have said to the South, erring sisters, go in peace. You know, you know, we're happy to be separated. And by the way, if the slaves get over the border, we're not sending them back. So, you know, you know screw you on that. Good luck maintaining that long border and not losing your slaves. And, and go on. We're not going to fight over this. But we didn't. And I think you know, it was raw nationalism. I mean, the South left over slavery, but the North decided to stop the South from leaving, not over slavery. It was over real nationalism, a vision of a united America over spreading the North American continent. You know, and we have to understand that about China. I mean, I talked to, uh, you know, I mean, students, you know, in uh, China who they don't like censorship. They certainly don't like the COVID stuff, but they believe Taiwan's part of China. I mean, this is raw nationalism, very tough. And that, that's why they want it. And number two is geography. It's 100 miles from the coast of China. It's like Cuba from America. Imagine China declaring that it's going to you know, defend Cuba from America. Good luck. We could lose. I mean, we we typically lose most of the war games they run now. So the only way we I think we have a chance of beating China is we have to get our allies in on it. I mean, we're pushing the Japanese hard. They've made some movement, but I'm not convinced they're actually there. They want the South Koreans in. I'm very skeptical the South Koreans will get in. I mean, the Philippines. Yeah, we love to. Yeah, we want bases there. That's about all. I mean, you know, the Filipino you know, military. I mean, I I joked in my article going back to World War One. Germans in that war talked about being, you know, kind of shackled to a corpse, you know, in their alliance with Austro-Hungary. I mean, it just was not a particularly potent, you know, great power. Uh, you know, so I think Taiwan's the most. I mean, if they want to, if you want to go to war over Taiwan, you have to have a real conversation with the American people and explain what's at stake. If they sink a, if they sink a carrier, and all it takes is you know some missiles, and they could do it. You know, five or six thousand sailors go to the bottom of the ocean. And if this thing goes real bad, it's heavy conventional war and it could escalate to nuclear. Are we prepared for that? Are we prepared for nuclear strikes on Guam? I, you know, my guess is the American people would be freaked. Um, yeah, so I think Taiwan's the most. Now, there's a lot of other territorial stuff, and that includes, I mean, Mischief Reef and Scarborough Shoal, which are Filipino claimed. You know, there are the Diayu or Senkaku Islands that uh, Japan holds. And there's other stuff, you know, in the region that the Chinese, you know, run around and put, you know, kind of build up artificial reefs and stuff. I mean, they they basically want to turn the South China Sea and, and related waters into a Chinese lake. We have navigational interests there. I do think that the likelihood of a war out of all that is probably small in that I think everybody kind of understands if you start shooting war over five, you know, unoccupied pieces of rocks, I mean, you're really, you are really stupid. But the U.S. has guarantees, security guarantees with both the Philippines and Japan. So if they do start shooting over those rocks, we have had officials say we will cover them. I mean, well, are we prepared? I mean, so, and because you can imagine, I mean, the, the, a couple of years ago, the Chinese sank a Oh, a Filipino uh, fishing ship. They rammed it. I don't think they meant to. I don't. You know, I don't think that they meant to um, sink it. But you know, it did sink. And at that point, uh, Duterte, who was then the president, demanded that the U.S. send in the navy. You know, and one, oh, I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff. Well, we we just ignored him because you know, he, I mean, he really was a bit of a crackpot. But it shows you the problem there. So those are things to worry about. I mean, I think on the military side, it's those territorial issues that are the most dangerous. Now, the economic, the, the Chinese view us as a, attempting to destroy their economy, especially their high-tech economy. Now, I'm not against some controls and semiconductors, artificial intelligence and other stuff. I mean, we have to be worried about this stuff. I mean, I, I tell people I'm very free market, I'm very libertarian. On the other hand, this is a Leninist state that basically can co-opt even its nominal private sphere. 
So we have to worry about what they might use some of those things for. But we have to target. Number one is we don't have our allies on board on semiconductor chips. I mean, the Dutch and the Japanese are saying, oh, well, wait, well, wait a minute now. Uh, and that's a problem for us. And it's a problem for our own producers. I mean, it gets very complex, but we have to, you start an economic war. You know, well, where is it going? I mean, we have to realize that the cost is very high. And I worry that at some point the Chinese are just going to say, okay, fine. You know, this is going to be a no, new Cold War. We're going to play the new Cold War. And that becomes much more dangerous, uh, you know, because I think you, if you're fighting over economics as well as uh, geopolitics, and, uh, you know, both of us are trying to force allies and friends to choose. You know, we want you're either with us or against us, as George W. Bush's famous phrase. Uh, we're, we're getting ourselves, I think, into a very dangerous situation. Yeah, I just had two more questions since you, you were talking about forcing allies to choose. I think a lot of people are looking at issues like the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And there are some states that are, are kind of not taking a side right now or in some ways leaning towards Russia. And they have various reasons for that. Um, could you maybe talk about um, how we deal with smaller nations uh, and just the, the way they may perceive things differently than us? When you go back to the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviet Union battled over third world states. And typically it was us versus them. You know, and you get a, a coup you know, comes in and, is, and suddenly they're now theirs as opposed to ours. Um, and at that point, we were much more open about supporting the most thuggish regimes imaginable. You know, I mean, you know, it's Mobutu and Zaire or something. Well, we get cobalt there, there so that's the way it goes, you know. And there are a lot of, the, lot of countries in the global south who remember all that. You know, and they, you know, they remember that the U.S., for all of its uh, preaching about democracy and human rights, you know, was quite prepared to support very ugly regimes for its own interest. And look, international affairs is very tough. And I think there are times you have to make very ugly decisions. World War II, you, you, know, you got the Nazis and you got the communists. Well, I think the Nazi Germany was a more proximate you know, threat. But that doesn't mean you like having to work with the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. Um, so I think a lot of these countries have you know, a memory of that. So, the, you know, the notion of the U.S. and Europeans, the colonial powers, I mean, the countries that, you know, you know kind of drew up lines that put warring tribes and groups together. And, you know, I mean, even the British, you know, look, I mean, they killed plenty of natives to kind of make sure they could run things. I mean, you know, the, the idea that somehow it was beneficent and we're raising up the people. And I mean, oh, yeah, OK, you know, kind of give me a break. And they remember this stuff. And they also are certainly aware of America's foreign policy, especially over the last 20 years, and the damage that has been done to countries without so much as an apology. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people die in Yemen or you know, uh, Iraq, and well, you know, well, that's kind of the way it goes, right? I mean, America doesn't talk about it. So there, I think there's a lot of reluctance out there to get drawn into this. I think for the most part, if you ask them, yeah, should Russia have done this? The answer obviously would be no. But they do view the U.S. and allied foreign policies having something to do with it. You know, their view is, you know, it's not as if the allies have done anything to win their allegiance. And look, most of these are poor countries. You know, if you're India and you suddenly have an opportunity to buy oil at a discount, well, you know, who, who are the, who's the rich West to tell you not to? You have people who are very poor. I mean, India remains. I mean, you know, the people at the bottom are really at the bottom. Uh, you know, so to tell them, you know, you should pay higher prices because there's a war that we help bring on. You know, so I think that the U.S. and allies need to work with them, think about, you know, choose our battles. What's most important? Where do we really want to get support? 
what's the best way to help Ukraine? What's the best way maybe to hurt the Russian military? You know, focus on those issues and, and the other stuff, don't worry about it. You know, accept the fact that the Global South sees an opportunity now, I think, to be an independent force. And, you know, if you look at the top, the 10 top you know, populous countries, only one, the U.S., is, you know, pushing sanctions against Russia. All the others, I mean, you know, China, India, Indonesia, Pakistan, I mean, go down, you know, Nigeria, go down the list. I mean, all these countries are taking a much more independent role. We're, we have to deal with that. Last thing I wanted to touch on here was, you know, I, I think uh, you're very much, you know, critical of, you know, say China. I know you're not a, a Putin fan. So I, I guess I think people get confused sometimes when we talk about these issues uh, because, you know, you don't have to be a fan of North Korea to say, hey, maybe we should be negotiating. Maybe we should be leaning towards diplomacy. Uh, how do you sort of walk that line where you're, you're critical of these countries, but we can also do diplomacy even if they're not our friends, even if they're our adversaries. Well, at first, I write about human rights. I believe in human rights, and I also think for credibility purposes, it's very important. If anyone has any doubt of my position on China, put in my name and Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I've called Xi the new Mao. I've talked about the history of China. I've done recent pieces you know, in terms of human rights. I've done a couple for National Review, conservative publication. I've written about Xinjiang. I mean, I've written about religious liberty in China. I mean, so, you know, I think the so number one is it is important, I think, for those who believe in liberty but believe in non-intervention in terms of foreign policy to make very clear to everyone that this does not mean we like the bad guys. And that's the case with Russia. That's why I've written a lot on Saudi Arabia. I mean, I've, uh, I have a piece pending on religious persecution in Iran. It's going to be up on the Acton Org uh, you know, website. You know, the, so to me, that's one thing I think we should do. I mean, number two is to look for places we can help. I mean, I would like to see us do what we can. Like, I'm, I'm working, I had a piece up on American Conservative this morning on the question of China and the protesters. I mean, I'd love to help the protesters, but this is one you have to be careful. You know, at the point where they actually think we're out to contain them, you, know, you start promoting people who are actually out there shouting, you know, Xi Jinping resigned and down with the communists. You know, you, you get you may get yourself into a point they think we're you know, promote we're promoting regime change. You know, dictatorships under threat of regime change, you'll behave very badly and, and they're likely to you know, kind of escalate the internal repression, but also potentially international relations. So. Then I, might I argue there are some things, I mean, I love the more we can do to bore holes in the Great Firewall, we should do. We want information going on. Michael Swain at the Responsible State, Statecraft came up with, I thought, a great idea. We should offer them very clearly, you know, kind of our uh, vaccines. We'll do anything we can to help them, you know, kind of spread vaccines and, you know, we have a good production. Now, there's a good chance the government would turn it down, but if, geopolitically, that'd be helpful. Let their people know that their government will go to get help. You know, and if they take it, that's also good. Now, we've done something good for the Chinese people. We haven't just sat there, you know, attacking the Chinese government. You know, and I mean, Egypt, I've been long been critical. Why do we give money to Egypt? I don't see a geopolitical need to do so. And this is this government is worse than the Mubarak government. I've written about Bahrain. The challenge there is we have a big base and Navy there. Well, at least recognize what they've done. You know, UAE kind of comes off easy when it comes to Yemen, but they were part of this, you know, terrible war. So I think that it's it's very important to go out there and talk about these issues. But to my mind, you know, diplomacy is a way that you maintain the peace, that ultimately the worst thing to have happen in Korea is to have a war. 
I mean, North Korea is awful. I mean, I've written you know, terrible things about, you know, Kim Jong-un and his father and his grandfather. They still wanted me to come. I mean, see, this, I think, is the critical thing that what I found is the Chinese, still, their, you know, diplomats talk to me. I mean, my presumption is they recognize the importance of dialogue. They understand how important it is to have a, a view of what's going on in America and have Americans understand them. And they know if criticism comes with that, they'll accept that. So, like I said, you know, to have not talked to the Soviets, it took a while before we recognized them. But imagine not talking to the Soviets in the Cold War. Look at China. We wouldn't talk to China. You know, and there was no official way for China to tell us in 1950, you guys come up to the Yalu, we're coming in. They tried to get messages to us through India. It didn't work very well. I, I won't claim that if we had a, an embassy in Beijing and they had an embassy in D.C., you know, in late 1950, that we would have worked things out. But there's at least a possibility that with an embassy, Mao Zedong could have called in the U.S. ambassador and said, hey, you got to understand this. You can come up, you know, to you know, restore the old lines, but you better not come anywhere close to our border. You know, we ended up in a you know, two and a half year war, primarily with China, not North Korea. It took us you know, years later for the Nixon initiative to you know start talking to them. That that's crazy. I mean, refusing to talk to countries just because they're bad. I mean, frankly, the, the countries you most need to talk to are the bad ones, the threatening ones, the dangerous ones. I just wanted to add to that briefly, and then I'll let you go. I was going to say, do you think in some ways we're living in maybe the hangover of the sort of war on terror years where I, I think there was this mentality of, um, you know, uh, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. You know, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, it, I feel like that's how we treat certain countries now that are seen as adversaries. There's this idea of, no, they just have to completely capitulate and we can't have talks. Yeah, I think that I think it reflects not necessarily just the war on terrorism, but the end of the Cold War. You know, we're the uni power. I mean, George H.W. Bush said at one rally, I mean, I found the I found the reference online. You know, what we say goes. Oh, well, sure. OK, yeah, fine. Right. I mean, you know, George W. Bush, I mean, you're you're with us, you're against us. I mean, so so what you found was it was the being the uni power, it's the hubris. We can make that kind of dictate. And then if you look at it through a terrorism lens, it's all moral. You know, and then everything becomes terrorism. You know that uh, Russia, we should declare them a terrorist state. Look, what Russia has done in Ukraine is absolutely awful. This is what governments do when they go to war. I mean, you know, look, look at the, you know, the bombing that we did in World War II. You know, we did it for, I understand why, trying to defeat Nazi Germany. We killed a lot of civilians with that bombing. You know, so were we terrorists? You know, so, but if you call everything a terrorist, then we're in that, as you point out, well, we can't negotiate with terrorists, you know, et cetera. And I think, so I think it's both that uni power sense and the, the fight against terrorism merging that have given us this position of moralism that has, it has to be perfection. We have to win this. They have to give up. And that's not the way international affairs work. Well, Doug Bondow, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? Well, they can go to the Cato uh, Institute website, the CATO.org. I write a lot for, as you indicated, antiwar.com. I write for the American Conservative. I write for Responsible Statecraft, which is put out by the Quincy Institute. Uh, there's a website, 1945, that I write for. You know, so there's there's a good number of folks out there, and some of the you know the Acton Institute one I mentioned, Acton.org. You know, so there's a, there's a good number of places. But Cato's a good place to start because they they put most of my material up. And thank you again, Doug Bandow. Happy to be on. You take care. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with William Hartung, Dr. Anel Shaline, and Doug Bandow. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax News, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.